broadcasting from Atlanta, Georgia, on Rock Radio UK, the Blues Channel, you are now live from the Midnight Circus. This is Lahamadu, and I've got a great show for you today. Today, our featured artist is Eliza Niels. She has a brand new release out. We'll be listening to tracks from that. And of course, we'll be talking with Eliza at the top of the hour. You're not going to want to miss that interview. Now, this is the voice of Indie Blues. This is the show that brings you nothing but currently touring artists who are out there creating new original music rooted in the blues. We embrace the diversity of music that always has and still is being created from those roots. Now, if you get a chance, stop by our website at makingascene.org. We got some great articles, CD reviews, artist interviews, and so much more. In the meantime, I have got some great new music I know you're going to love. And some great new artists I can't wait to introduce you to. And of course, I aim to misbehave.
He told me to meet you there How we end up here So the plans were made But then you made a change You've changed your mind again When will it end? We may have had a few, yeah Maybe more than one or two In the crowd running wild And I'm liking her style Then it all fades to black I don't think I'll be going back Cause when the lights came on She was in another zone I think I better let you know I just can't take no more It's been a strain on my heart Baby girl I just can't take no more Think I gotta let you go You're a stranger in my arms uh -huh.
never had a day that took my name I always stumble over my best lines Can I be your valentine? I don't know half as much as I need to know Haven't gone half as deep as I want to go I still can't recognize the most obvious sign Can I be your valentine? I say I do, I do until I'm blue There's nothing hidden there Gotta keep on trying To be your valentine A rusted arrow in a homemade car There are no roses growing in my backyard
tell your papa to Gonna tell your brother And your little sister too You're a mean, mistreating woman And I'm tired of your evil way Oh, I got to tell somebody How you've been treating me Tell somebody how you've been treating me. You're mean, mistreating woman, and I'm tired of your evil way. Take your love by the hand, sing your blues 
scale.
next to me Even though you're dreaming of how we used to be You seem distant, so far away Yeah, you've been distant for many a day Sleeping in the same bed, but there's a wall between us And it feels like the distance
gone so long Now I'm singing this song So you can hear me It's been so long Since you were near me What you want me to do I'm lost without a you What did I do wrong To cause you to leave me Since you've been gone I've done nothing but grieve What you want me to do I'm lost without a you Yeah. 
She's a drifter and she's on her own. I ain't playing around. She's a drifter and she's on her own. Now she's a drifter. Happy 
your slow
everything And you're anything That comes in between I wanna spend some time independent artist or a fan that loves them making a scene.org is the place for you for the music fan we bring you in-depth interviews and cd reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music for the independent artist we bring you articles on music business recording techniques gear reviews and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. Now, here's an indie blues double shot from our featured artist today, Eliza Niels. And stay tuned for that interview. It comes up right after these songs.
That was Eliza Neals from her brand new release, and we've got Eliza on the line right now. Hey, Eliza, how you been? Hey, Richard, I'm back. I'm so happy to be here today and talk to you. It's been a long time. I know, it's been a while since since we've talked or or seen each other, so it's been some time. I know, I I, I keep up with you every day, though. I see your posts, and... (laughs) I'm always liking them, and I appreciate all your support with my music. Well, anytime. Now, you've been on this show several times, but, you know, I always like to give our fans this opportunity to get to know who you are, to kind of, you know, um, get inside of your head a little bit. And the best way to do that is through your story, your journey up to this point. So give us the story of Eliza Neals. Okay. Hi, everybody. Um, if you're listening, you've never heard of me, you're like, who the hell is Eliza Neal? But um, I started out living in the suburbs of Detroit, and I grew up in a very musical household. I have uh, two sisters and a brother, and my dad used to bring out the banjo and the uh, mandolin and the harmonica when we were little kids. We'd play it, and we'd all, like, you know, listen to him play, you know, folk songs and stuff. I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but um, we'd all sing along and... Hello? Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Sing along and and do stuff like Puff the Magic Dragon, You Are My Sunshine, you know. Um, Just just fun songs. And from there, we just kept singing. We just loved it. It was just part of our family. My mom and dad had a jug band. I don't know if you know... You probably heard what that was. Oh, yeah. Back in the 70s, like... They had a jug band in the neighborhood, and they'd come over, I think, once a week, the, the band. And we used to sneak out and watch them. And it was like a, a broom stick, you know, in the, in the what was like a big tub. And he had strings on there, and it would be the bass. And then there'd be harmonica, and then, the, you know, of course, the washboard for rhythm and spoons. And, you know, it was just really cool. And we watched that. And obviously, all this went into us, you know, as kids. And we thought it was really cool, and we started singing with the band, you know, with my mom and dad's little... They were adults doing it, of course, and we were just always watching through... I remember watching through the bedroom door. You know, we had shutter doors, so you could see through it and hear it. And so that really played a part in it, I think. Um, loving, like, roots American music, blues, folk, you know, um, acoustic even, you know. But I'm an Armenian, we're, we're Armenian, third generation. So we had a lot of Armenian music played in the house. Um, if you don't know what Armenian is, it's anything with an I-A-N on the end. So Cher's Armenian, her name is Sarkeesian. There's a lot of Armenian people like Kim Kardashian, no one likes to admit that, but, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, there are Charles Aznavour, he's a famous singer in France, we're related to, Aznavourian is my mom's maiden name. So Charles Aznavour is a relative of ours. He's a French singer, and he's, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he's pretty famous in, in France. Um, anyway, so from then on, um, we just started singing in talent shows and stuff as kids. My sister Valerie, my older one, and myself, uh, we're just like grade school, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh grade. Then as it just kept going, uh, we had a piano in the house. My older sister started playing the piano. We had piano lessons for me and my sister Val and Michelle. We'd play piano, then Valerie would go out and buy sheet music um, from all the stuff in the 70s, late 70s. 
so like Steve Miller, Doobie Brothers, uh, even like old um, like blue stuff, um, like BB King, like books of like Aretha, um, Aretha's like music books. We sit and play these songs and start singing together and harmonizing, and we just began to take all these songs that we loved and um, turn them into our own kind of songs, like. Um, whatever spoke to us, we just start writing our own music. And so, as that went on, we got into the, you know, um, let's see, James Taylor, Jackson Brown, stuff like that. Was a, the, the great songwriter. Well, I think Jackson Brown's a great songwriter. Um, of course, he and Bonnie Raitt have written a lot of stuff and worked together a lot. So his work ethic of writing songs um, and the Eagles, people like that, they would just sit and write these songs and they wouldn't stop till the song was complete. And so I kind of learned how to write songs from that. Like they would just write the verses or the ideas on the piano. And I, Jackson Brown would say he wouldn't get up till like the whole idea of the song was finished. And I'm like, wow, I can't settle with this song yet. Jackson Brown's gonna write it another, you know, till he has the bridge and the come back to another verse. And I gotta sit back down and keep on working. So I kind of learned from that, and then um, I would come up with ideas that you always wonder what comes first, the music or the lyrics. With me, it comes, it can be, I have a whole book of stuff that I write, and I kind of take pieces of this lyric with pieces of a lyric I wrote maybe five years ago, and a lyric that I spoke into my phone. I use my phone a lot, the memo, voice memo. Mm-hmm. To write, I use that all the time when I'm writing. That's how I wrote this album. A lot of it was in my voice memos, singing melodies and stuff like that. I'll be listening to the radio. I might hear a song I love on there and then just say, oh, I want to write a song like that, you know, but then I'll forget about it. And then um, I'll write melodies on the piano and I'll tape record that. And then when I'm in the process of writing a song, I'll just put together melodies that kind of go with a lyric, I think, that would go with that melody. And then piece by piece, I'll find older lyrics, write new lyrics, or just kind of keep it open till the day I record it. And then I just write lyrics on the spot, if you can believe it. So I don't know if that all makes sense, but that's kind of like during my growing up years and then always being in school, you know, choirs and the madrigals and... Um, I was very active there. Then I went to a Wayne State University and studied opera. And we toured Europe in like this choir where we did jazz and, and blues. And I used to sing the solos with this like 70 piece choir. We toured for three months all through Europe, you know, Germany, Switzerland, Austria. And I was told that I should become an opera singer and give up all this blues and rock and have a pure voice. And um, I didn't really want to do that because I loved it so much. I mean, I was singing five nights a week, you know, all around Detroit, um, learning everything I could. And I was just, I just spoke, music speaks to me. I don't, it's just something in the music. I just had to be around it, see it, be inside of it. Whatever I could do to be around it, I did it. And um, when people ask me, what makes you, what do I do? You know, it calls you. I don't even think you can figure... Someone can't tell you, do this, this, and this. You have to kind of figure it out on your own. They can steer you in a direction, but no one told me, like, go study opera, and all of a sudden you're going to become a blues singer. I mean, 
that doesn't even go together. You know what I mean? Right, right. It's like the opposite spectrum. And my teacher was from Vienna, and she was like, you have to stop singing rock and roll. Your voice has to be pure. It can't be raspy. But all that training helps me to become the singer I am now because now that training helps me to sing really four octaves, really high, really low, and not lose my voice. So I was just always involved in music in talent shows, kept doing it, sitting in everywhere I could. I remember I'd go to Burt's Warehouse and just sit in with the blues bands. And they'd say, you know what, you really have a great uh, blues voice. It's very, very um, gritty. We love it. And um, you should really keep singing blues and sing Etta James and go learn some Coco Taylor, Bessie Smith, um, go listen to some, you know, Howlin' Wolf and... Albert King, and of course, B.B. King was the number one. I, I was already obsessed with um, Bonnie Raitt because she was on the radio all the time in the 80s, right? Yeah. So, you know, I had to go backwards to go forwards, basically. Now, let's talk a little bit about your, you mentioned about your songwriting. Um, you know, I, I find that lyrics and melody, they have a different function of the brain. It's a different process. You know, finding lyrics is a craft, you know, you, it's got a very logical flow to it. You need a story, continuity, rhyme, meter, all of those elements. But melody's a little different. Some writers like to work off a groove. Others like to work off the chord structure. What's kind of your go-to when you go looking for the melody? Um, okay, that's a great question. Sometimes, like for Queen of the Nile, um, the melody just came to me. When I was playing those chords, it's a B minor blues, because I love slow blues. It's my favorite thing to sing. Um, it just came, to, that melody just came to me. I'm, I'm telling you, I, I finished writing it in the studio on the spot. So I kind of wrote, you know, one kiss and you're through. You know, They'll be waking up a love crazy Detroit woman, you know, and I had that. But then when it, it progressed, I had these words, right? And I, I overwrite the lyrics. So I had four verses. I just kept writing ideas about love struck. What happens when you're love struck? You're under a spell, you're this, you're that. I had all these different things that I was writing down. And I just have all those pages in front of me when I'm singing it. And then the story kind of writes itself in the studio on this particular song. So I had the first verse, I had the second verse, but I didn't have the third verse after the solo. I just had these words, and it, it kind of wrote itself. Like, and I did it in one. We all, we did that song in one take. Every the music, the music and the vocal. So in that song, it kind of was already written. The melody came to me from hearing the music. You know, the the melody on the piano. It just came. And then I wrote it from there. It just kept progressing as I heard it in the studio with all the musicians there. Then I went higher and I came down and it wrote itself, that song. But United We Stand is a totally different way of approaching when I write songs. That song, I had the lyrics. I had all of them there. And I told my friend Mike, he, I co-wrote with him on that one. I said, Mike, I want a really cool, you know, feel, old school blues idea, kind of like Bo Diddley, but more modern, you know, just kind of like with a heavier groove, a heavier bottom end. And then he played me this, this riff, and I go, yeah, yeah, that's it. So then he, he put that part together, 
And then the melody just wrote itself out of the, the music that he played me, and, and, we, and that's how that song came about. Just like, I had the words already, and I wrote that one in, in the studio as well. The, the song came to me there. But I wrote King Kong on the piano. That was a different one. I wrote each part the way I wanted to hear the verses, the pre-chorus, you know, going into the choruses, the arrangement, the bridge. It was all on piano, and then when it came to life in the studio, it was like totally a rocker, so it didn't sound anything like what I wrote on the piano. But the arrangement was the same. So it's all different ways. I don't know if, I, if, if I'm explaining this right, but yeah, no, it, 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 it can sense. happen other, any other way. Yeah, so like King Kong, I had the whole thing done and written. It was just, okay, guys, you're going to play, you're going to rock out to the... In fact, Lance Lopez goes, Detroit Rock and Roll, right? I said, yep, that's all I had to say. Boom. They, they killed it. These guys just went in and just knocked it out. as like one or two takes, all these songs. And then, of course, I used Skeeter Valdez and Paul Randolph, and I used Billy Davis in Detroit. They've always been like that with me. I want it to feel live, like I do live on stage. I want it to be live. I don't make them do a million takes. I, I, I don't believe that the best thing for me and what I do. I just, it's like one or two, fresh, kill it, let's move on. Right. Well, definitely today, in these in these times, I mean, being efficient in the studio is important. That's and the sure. bill, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, wait, we have two more hours, let's go, come on. And, you know, picking the musicians who can do that, you know, you gotta, you gotta choose wisely, you know? Yep. That you choose do. Choose wisely. And now, the engineer. The engineer better be good, too. Now, let's talk a little bit about going into the studio. Um, you know, every artist has their way of getting their sound, and I know you were just saying that you want that live feel. Tell yeah, me a little that. bit about your process when you get into the studio. How do you like to work in that environment? Um, I like to play it down with the guys or girls, whoever's in there. We didn't use a click track this time, no clicks. We just went off like I'd start the groove on the piano and then we'd I'd show them the tune then we'd say okay let's just hit it so we'd hit it I'm of course a little nervous in the beginning till we get going because it's like oh my god we're in this huge beautiful studio we got all these people here this better come out good you know? so um once we get going it just it's just magical I don't know I've been lucky so far it's just they, they're so tuned into the tunes and what I, what I sing and what I do. They follow my vocal cues a lot. And then we get it down. And then some of the times I sing it over again. Or sometimes it just worked out where it came. That was it. That was the vocal. And that's, that's what happened on Queen of the Nile. I did, I think, overdub a couple, maybe two or three lines. And then, of course, I added the background vocal at the very end when we were mixing. I said, wait, I'm going to put some background vocals on here before they mixed it. But I, I, I like to um, have a live feel, like I'm just, you know, I'm with a group of people and we're getting the song done. Okay. Now, um, you know, getting it out there um, and you have to get it to radio, you, you're going to be doing this yourself. Um, how was that process for you as far as getting it to radio and press and things like that? The thing we've done differently... Um, because after the pandemic, you know, everything, I lost so many gigs, and of course, financially, we had to figure out, how are we going to do this, you know, um, on, on a smaller budget? So, 
um, I, we decided to do Airplay Direct, and um, that's been great because people are downloading it. They're, they're coming there and they're downloading it. And in fact, we're number one downloads right now on Airplay Direct, which is really, really, it's nice to see that people are I'm getting a lot of orders. Um, I think it's, it's, it's difficult, but at least I know the people who are getting it are getting it. And it's not like I'm wasting all these CDs in the mail. Do you know what I mean? Right, right. Or I'm connecting, or I'm like, hello, did you receive my CD? Like, if somebody I know from radio, or they contact me. Do you have any new music? We'd love to play it. And then we just kind of work like that. People reach out to me all the time. Is it ready yet? You know, they're so used to hearing that Black Crow Mom was just out. That was two years now. And they're always reaching out for my new music. So I make notes of who wants a, a physical copy, or if they want digital, they go to Airplay Direct. And then um, they're getting it. Um, you know, two weeks before, a couple weeks before. And then, of course, it gets, gets to Sirius XM, and I, I'm blessed there because it's in heavy rotation now. Okay, well, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that, are, that, that's money coming in. Yeah, Rack of Blues for um, almost six weeks. On, it was top five twice, and then seven, 12, 13. So it's pretty, I, I'm just so happy because it's like, you know, Bernard Allison's on there, Bonnie Ray, I mean, Edgar Winter, and then here's us on our indie label and it's it's quite i mean i'm, I'm just happy you know yeah <laughs> now you know we've been uh, in this digital revolution now for over 20 years and you know let's face it the consumer has really embraced streaming as a way to to consume the music um yeah. You know, CDs are pretty much on their way out. You can't even find the hardware anymore to play CDs. Um, so, you know, once the hardware goes, the software is not too far behind. Yeah. Um, but this whole new mentality of not looking at recorded music as a product to buy anymore, it's now a service they expect on their phone 24-7. Um, how has this shift affected you as an artist? Well, I don't like it. I mean, they, they need to pay up. I mean, this is, this is ridiculous. I mean, they're getting music for free at the service. No, it's, it's what we've studied and worked on and had to do our whole life, just like a doctor or a lawyer or a plumber or whoever. Okay, do they come fix your toilet for free? No, it should have a fee, and it should be way more money than what we're getting. I think we should all figure out a way. I mean, I know SiriusXM is great, but... Spotify and all that. You need a million to make, what, five grand a year? Something like that? Yeah. Um, it's, it's it's ridiculous. It's not fair. And, and also the major labels are trying to cut out the independent. Because I've noticed after the two-year hiatus, there's a lot of people I haven't seen come back up on anything. And then they're putting, they're, they're stopping people like, you know, like me who are independent from getting on these bigger festivals. It's like they have this conglomerate going. It's like, What's going on here? You can't let an independent artist get in? It's like, how many times I've been trying to get on the Big Blues Bender or one of these, and people have been asking me, asking me, same people every year. I'm like, what is going on? How do we do this? I mean, if people don't see you on those festivals, thank God we're on some, and people do, and they're like, where have you been? I'm like, well, there's something going on. Don't you think, Richard? Well, you know, it's not only just the festivals. I mean, COVID really hit um, the, the touring industry hard. 
Yeah. Um, you know, because now the festivals, as of you know, as someone who's done festivals, your biggest you know worry is not covering your bottom line. So right. you know, now what I got to do is I have to hire the biggest acts that I can afford to bring in the crowds that I need to bring in. You know. Yeah, I t- yeah, I get that. Yeah. But, you know, but the other side of that is, is that all those routing gigs that we really depend on, especially independent artists, to get you from point A to point B, you know, on that Monday, Tuesday night, where you have to feed the band, you got to get them hotel rooms, you know, mm-hmm, you got to put mm-hmm. gas in the in the van, you know, those are the gigs that that have disappeared. You know, those I venues know, didn't know. survive this two years and going on three now of of being shut down and socially distanced, cutting their, their capacity. So, you know, we need to rebuild this whole system mm-hmm. from no, the ground totally. up. Yeah, I know. They have to have the big names. I understand that. But they still can have, like, this. I, I know so many great musicians who are on the radio and all this stuff. And they're just trying to get in there, the promoters or whatever. It's a little bit of a, of a record major label thing going on. We know that. But that, you can break through that, like you said. But what you're saying is so true. And I find myself, being a female indie, you know, women indie, um, we have to regroup. And what I've been doing because of the gas and everything like that, you have to kind of go with a region and say, I'm going to use these musicians here or these musicians here. And it's so hard flying people, you know, from one spot to another and then driving and then not enough and not enough gigs in between. Because, you know, I'm a, a, a female record label owner, producer and everything. And it's so it's like a one. Per, I'm a one percenter, you know, in this. I know Mindy Abar does it. Uh, mm-hmm. She's independent and she's a female. She does a lot of her own stuff. And I know Joanne Parker does also. She's great. Um, and there's some of us here. But um, it, as I said, getting those gigs in between, are, you can't do them. It doesn't pay. Like I, if you if you get like I had to, I went to Maine and did the Monday night, which I love to do. That's the best. Oh, the Time Out Pub, yeah. Yeah, the new. I do that, and I don't even care if it's like one or two gigs because it's so worth it to me. I love going there and seeing the people and then you know we sell out of merch it, it, it works out but if i'm gonna go play you know just someplace in between without like a festival or three other gigs you can't do it because you can't afford the hotel and the gas so i can't book them right now right so i'm yeah. just gonna not do them i'm just gonna have to wait i'm waiting till things hopefully you know you get something good here or, or you have to book a whole bunch of little ones you know what I mean to make up for it a whole bunch like five a week you know every night to make it even out yeah I, I agree I know people who do that too but that's I don't I, I think that's working more I think it's not as smartly working as you could I, I don't know me personally I think it's still a ton of gas money's on well you know between the the pandemic shutting down touring and the fact that the consumer no longer buys recorded music, it's really gone to devastate the music industry's middle class. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. that whole segment that really the industry depends on to bring new talent to the fore, bring new songs to the to the table. 
And if it's not economically feasible for that segment of the industry to to continue to create, it's going to get really slim. There's the, I mean, there's going to be less people out there creating. You know I what know. I mean? Yeah, I totally know. I know. I've seen it already. And it's like, where'd this person go? Where'd that person go? It's, you know, I, I did South by Southwest in 2001. It was so packed with new people. Uh, I mean, I was... Nikki Six was in the audience, and that was the year White Stripes broke out. And, um, you know, I still... I, people think I just started, you know, when they hear me on the radio. Oh, I just... You must be an overnight success or something like that. But no, I'm still doing this on my own, like, this long. Like, I've had... I was signed to Virgin Records. I don't know if I've ever told you this. And the guy that signed me um, three months later got moved to another. This was with Barrett Strong's record label, and it was more on the, the uh, R&B kind of soul mm-hmm. stuff. And um, I did, like, one album. It's called I Want More. And then the guy got fired, and then he lost his job. So that was, like, my first record deal. But I've been, you know, I've been... Uh, um, approached by a couple of labels, but I figured we're doing more for ourselves than the record label would, you know? So I'm looking for a booking agent, of course, who isn't a yeah. good one, um, because that's the hardest thing for me, is to get these, the bookings. Or I have Lou Phoenix now helping me in Florida, which is, he's a great guy. He's helping me a lot. And we're doing everything, but um, it's going to go away. We have to, I don't know what we're supposed to do. I, what do you think everyone should do? I mean, we have to open more businesses that have music. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it all starts with a real simple premise that you need butts in the seat. Yeah. If, if there is a huge market for people to go see live music in, in intimate venues, then those venues will appear. You know what I yeah. mean? People will create those businesses because they're profitable. But, I mean, let's face it, prior to the pandemic, live music had its problems, you know? Yeah, 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 you, it did. You, you know, you went, you've been at those gigs where, you you know, you show up and there's 10 people and eight of them are blood relatives. Yeah. You know? Yeah, those are, yeah, those aren't fun. No, but, you know, they, they are a reality, you know, prior to the pandemic that, you know, that was how you dealt with some of these gigs, you know, that you had these these gigs. And what what there is, is there is a huge potential market out there that really never had that frame of reference of mm-hmm. going to a small intimate venue and watching music in the moment. You know what I mean? Musicians creating in front of you. And yeah. each performance is a little different because of that. You know, they would go to the stadium shows. They would see the music uh, or hear the music that sounded exactly like the recording. You know, all of the excitement was generated by pyrotechnics and and lights and choreography. But that intimate um, expression by musicians on the stage that is being created right then and there is something that they, they didn't grow up with. You know, I'm an old guy. You know, I grew up going to hear live music. Yeah. You know, if a club didn't have a band, they didn't have people, you know? Um, and we need to get back to that. And I yeah. think... Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that happened is that when the pandemic hit, a lot of artists that were out there touring prior started to go on their, 
you know, on social media, started doing live streams, started to mm-hmm. bring that experience to that fan base. Yeah, and, that helped me a lot. Can't can't stop the blues. Really helped me a lot. Yeah, and but it's not only that. They started working their social media. They started creating content, not necessarily all music related. They created content that that almost created a, a reality show mentality. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. And you had mentioned Mindy. I mean, Mindy does a cooking thing with her husband, and they got their line of wines, and you know, yeah. and you know, she's got a whole persona that she promotes on social media that includes her music but is not restricted to her music. Yeah. You know, it it kind Mm -hmm. of branches out into a wider net, uh, you know, bringing a a wider swath of people into her marketing funnel. And her monetization... Is is not restricted to just her music because she sells her wine and all yeah, that other stuff. Wine. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. you know, I think that we're looking at a future where um, social media marketing and creating a brand is now going to be the new product. Your brand is your product, mm-hmm. and that brand yeah. yep. is what's going to draw people to you when we get really back into touring big time and hopefully create crowds. I mean, let's face it, you had mentioned the Kardashians earlier. Yeah. If if yeah. a Kardashian showed up someplace and did nothing but stand there, they would draw a, car, a crowd. Mm-hmm. Because of their sense of celebrity. Yeah. You know? And that's what we need to do now as independent artists, right. is to create that celebrity, create yeah. that illusion, and then when they pass that marquee, and they see your name, they say, oh, I've seen her on TikTok, or on, on Instagram, or Twitter, yeah. or, or Facebook Live, or whatever the case may be, YouTube. And that's what's going to draw, or at least... Um, fuel a a resurgence to Mm -hmm. people showing up and seeing live music and it's not always going to be about the music it's going to be about going to see you in person right as a celebrity entity you know what i mean yeah yeah totally yeah well the thing that's helping me tremendously is like the the radio play on sirius xm and everywhere i go People are telling me, I hear your song, I hear your song. That's, if, I, if I didn't have that, I'd be probably jumping off of a bridge. <laughs> but thank God I have that, and I'm able to create, and I don't have to get out and jump in my car right now and go play some you know, empty club somewhere that no one knows who's, you know. You know, if, if you, they, they don't know you in a region, it's very hard. You have to go in the regions that know you. And in my case, I go to the regions that know me and the festivals and it's been catching on and getting bigger and bigger as I go. So the online thing during the pandemic, the Can't Stop the Blues, really helped me because I created a whole new fan base that now waits for me to come online live. So you're absolutely right about the live um, performances. Oh, yeah, and they definitely and help. Yeah, yeah, and creating your brand. And I know I see you 
on uh, on uh, Instagram. I see your pictures you put up. I see your Twitter. So you're very active on social media. Mm-hmm. We're get, it's helping a ton. Um, you know, I have almost 14,000 followers. I know that's not huge. It's not 100,000, but it's not horrible. And those people are all engaged. Right. They've all been ordering. They've been ordering CDs. They all want to come to shows. And it's more and more people from there who are coming to the shows, the shows that I've had since uh, since the pandemic ended. You know, I was in Florida doing, did a couple festivals and a couple things, and they, they were all really crowded. But people are coming out. And they are wanting to see, you know, the music and hear it. And um, they're really connecting with the songwriting and, and the vocals. The vocals are a huge thing. People want to hear great vocals, uh, and they know the difference between a great vocal and a terrible vocal. Well, you know, I, I tell a lot of artists, you know, they, they often wonder, how do you make a living at this? And if you really think about it, all you really need is 1,000 people that are willing to spend $100 a year on your art. Mm-hmm. Whether it's tickets to a show, merch at the merch table, CDs or vinyl or whatever the case may be, 1,000 people at $100 a year. And if you think about that worldwide market that you have access to, that 1,000 people are not as difficult to get as it would initially seem. You know what right. I mean? Yeah, totally. And, and, it, and as you go, like when, like on Instagram, for instance, let's say pre-order now. I got a ton of people who pre-ordered. Just from that, they all want... And the thing is, though, when they hear the music, they have to connect with it and like it, too. You know? It, oh, yeah. You've got you to have the goods. Car. You better have some good stuff. You know, if not, forget it. They're just going to be like, next, but... That's true. Everything has to be clicking, I think. You have to just find something that people really want to hear, I guess. Yeah. And I know I'm, I'm trying to do a lot on my own. And, of course, if I find a great booking agent who will do it, I'm going to do it and see how that goes and, and do as many gigs as I can, you know, while things are opening. But, you know, 120 of my gigs were canceled during the pandemic. Yeah. That's, that's a big hit. That was terrible. But I went live. I recorded another album, and now that's paying me back. Okay. The well, that's good. Yes. Well, so, you know, well, hey. I don't, I don't know. i, I got to find a way to get it heard. That's all I can say. Figure yeah. out a way. Just keep, but I think keep plugging can, along. Yeah, if you can get it on the radio that pays, then it's a good thing. Now, the other thing is, is like the merch thing. We have these jean jackets I saw, and... I could sell a jean jacket for 140 bucks. That's like way more expensive than a CD for 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. So you sell like five jean jackets. That pays for all the gas in the hotel rooms and everything. Yeah, well, you know, you have to have a diversified uh, merch table too. That's important, or at least yeah. have and have it available on your website, so people yeah, can yeah. order from you know remotely, not necessarily all at the show. Mm-hmm. You know. Yes, I, I agree, and, and I just think that, you know, the whole thing, like you said, the digital thing, it's going to get huge, but we have to figure out a way to get paid more money for, if I got $2 for every Spotify, if I had at one time 30,000 followers, that's, how much is that? $60,000 or more. Yeah. Well, they don't give you that. 
No. Well, we have to figure out a way to do that because well, it's not fair, Richard, what they're doing. I don't know how we're going to do it, but somehow we have to. Well, know, you know, I think that, that streaming is about to evolve. Yeah, and, and you think they'll be able to, we'll be able to get that kind of money? Well, I don't know if we're going to be able to get that kind of money, but what I do see coming down the pike is this blockchain streaming platforms that are being developed and are out there right now, like okay. Audius and Emanate. Um, and these platforms, number one, they're decentralized. In other words, no company can own them. They're owned by the people who put up the content. Uh, one of the problems with Spotify is that the record companies went to Spotify and they, uh, they negotiated deals with Spotify that gave them a larger piece of the pie. And what happened for the independent artists is that little bit that was left over Spotify pretty much said, hey, you know, take it or leave it. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, this is what you get if you don't like it, tough noogies, because they had access to a huge market of potential fans. So musicians dealt with that because of the fact that they can get access to a worldwide market with their music, potentially, you know? Okay, yeah. But with these blockchain streaming platforms, that's not possible because there is no entity to negotiate with. And the fact that if it's driven by these smart contracts, once those contracts are in place, they're not going to be able to be changed. So that percentage deal of how the money is divvied up would be controlled by a digital... Um, contract that says if you get listened to you get x amount of money paid to your wallet and that's how it would operate and they're mm -hmm. claiming that they'll pay up to 80 to 90 percent of the incoming revenue back to the content creators of the artists themselves and the other 10 percent will go to run the network more or less so uh, okay i'm gonna check out audio yeah and, and like I said, this is this is how we're going to uh, evolve streaming. Because let's face it, the technology is not going anywhere. Right. Um, it's it's like Audius. It's it runs the same way that Spotify does. You create playlists that gives you you know discoveries of you know who you know who you should listen to based on your algorithm. It's just like Spotify. So once the big artists start moving over to these platforms. So will the fans. They will move along with them. You okay. Know? Do you think those the people that are the top of the blues that do they some of these labels I hear I hear horror stories that they get signed and they have to pay for their own albums and they're not even making any money. I've heard horrible stories. Well that's been forever. Record companies I mean, screwing artists. The yeah, they're on the road. You think they're making all this money. I'm not gonna name any labels because we know who some of them are. But I heard right from people's mouths, they had to buy their own records, they had to sell them at their shows, they did had to pay back for the album. If they didn't make enough money back, all they got was their gig money. They don't even get the money from Sound Exchange or from... Uh, oh, yeah. So what's the... I mean, I don't understand why people want to be on labels so bad if they do that. Well, it, what, to it, get the gig? Well, it do cuts... Do they make that much money on gigs? It cuts, the, it cuts out the out-of-pocket expenses. 
You know oh. what I mean? And, and yeah, going into the studio. The, oh, I see. But how much do they have at the end of the day, though? Well, probably not much. I mean, even independent artists, when you look at... Yeah, I know. If you were... Right. It's yeah. hard. Yeah, if yeah, you look at what you... Going. Yeah, if you... <laughs> You go, you know, if you add up what you spend as to what you get back, you know, getting that break-even point is is tough, and it's just as tough for the record label, especially yeah, small just, independents. Yeah. yeah, you know, you have just enough to keep going, maybe a little extra, and you can record again and keep it going, and you might be able to do a promotion and do this and buy some new merch, and then you keep, but you can keep going is the point, and keep making a little bit more each time, and that's kind of like how we do it, um, or but I just wonder what what's better, you know? I don't think there's a question of what's better. I think it's a question of what works for you. What works for you, right. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Because I heard some stories and, and the people were like, I couldn't wait to get rid of that label, you know? And they're kind of independent now. And um, But some people really need to do that. They have to take the label to get the recording done so they can have a recording done. So I get it. Yeah, I totally got it. It's a catch twenty two. However, you look at it, that is for sure. Now <laughs> you know, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking with us. And uh, we're going to give everyone out there an indie blues double shot from your new release. You guys are going to love this. You know what? Turn it up loud. Screw the neighbors. We're going to have some <laughs> fun. Yeah. Yeah.
independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution.
milk your own cow Keep your hands off of others Those belong to another That cow's not your mother Keep your hands off of others Don't you ring a bell She ain't yours to sell Think you're the farmer in the dell Don't you ring a bell
for this one. We're going to do this for you. The moment you realize how could there possibly be this many blues?
preceding program was recorded earlier, so the producer and cast didn't have to walk home in the dark.
it that's my show for tonight i hope you enjoyed yourself i hope you heard some artists that you didn't know about and enjoyed some artists that you did and remember all of these artists that i played on this show are out there right now touring and creating new original music rooted in the blues If you want to keep the blues alive, you have to support the artists who are out there creating that new music. Because it is a living art form that is being performed every single night somewhere in the world. So, if you get a chance, stop by our website at makingthescene.org. You can find out about some great new artists and the ones that we played on the show tonight. Add them to your playlist. And you can discover them on our website. So, 
Till next time, this is Lahamadu. Tech, I'm out of here. Baby, just gone away. Doctor things left home with my friend. I gone lost my dog. I'm alone. Just fought somebody. I mean, found it funny. I got knocked in the head, man, by old friends. I lie me and think I'm dead. Drink so long. Gonna drink for the old damn time. Gonna keep back in the sea. Just one.